0: we can either kick against the pricks and wish that the world was what it used to be, or we can say, you know what, we're gonna own this. Like the world has changed forever and we're gonna do this better than everyone else and it's gonna become a competitive advantage.
1: You're listening to the Elevate Podcast and I'm your host, Robert Glazer. Join me as I talk to world-class performers about how they build their capacity and reach greater heights in leadership, business, and life and how you can do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from H. Jackson Brown Jr. Remember that the happiest people are not those getting more, but those giving more. My guest today, Davis Smith, has made giving the foundation of a thriving business. He is the founder and CEO of Cotopaxi, a highly popular carbon-neutral outdoor gear brand founded to create sustainably designed products that fight extreme poverty, inspire adventure, and move people to do good. In 2021 alone, Cotopaxi aided over 1 million people in extreme poverty through their nonprofit partnerships and revenue sharing. Davis, thank you for joining me on the Elevate podcast. Absolutely. It's great to be with you, Robert. All right. So I always like to start at, at the beginning, particularly with you know people who are entrepreneurial childhood. I, I think you have an interesting uh, story there. I also read something about someone who stole your gym shoes. So can um, you tell
0: us a little bit about your... <laughs> growing up and then the story about the gym shoes and how that impacted you yeah absolutely uh yeah so you know i had an interesting childhood as a as a child when i was 4 years old my family left the united states we moved to latin america and i grew up in a number of countries uh, the dominican republic was the first place i lived as a child and um, you know one of the one of the poorest countries in the western hemisphere ex- you know really a, a huge percentage of the population living in extreme poverty and then uh, ultimately ended up moving down to South America. And, uh, and so, you know, I I developed a real love for this part of the world. And certainly, you know, my family was not wealthy, you know, had a large family, I'm one of eight children. And uh, what number are you? I'm the second. And so, you know, especially in those, you know, is a family, I think when you're sometimes at the tail end of a family, your parents have more, at the beginning, they have a lot less, you know, so it was the kind of thing where, uh, we didn't have a lot, you know, I, I got one pair of shoes a year, you know, it was a lot of hand-me-downs from my elder brother, but at the same time, like I never knew, like, I never knew that, like, we didn't have a lot. And, uh, you know, living in Latin America just felt like we had so much and I just felt so lucky and so fortunate. Um, and, uh, honestly a lot of my life felt a lot of guilt around why do why do I have this life that's so different from everyone around us that has so little, I knew that I would have opportunities that these other people would never have um, simply because of where I was born. But I ended up moving, my family moved back to the United States when I was a teenager. And so uh, I went to high school here in the U S and um, but in my first couple weeks of living in the United States. And I, I all of a sudden for the first time in my life, I looked like everyone else around me, right. uh, you know, moved to Salt Lake city and, but I didn't feel like everyone else. Like I, I felt so different. You know, I, I had just had this completely different life and, you know, I didn't, I didn't know what any brands were and, uh, I didn't, you know, I didn't know what was cool. And I, you know, I, I used Spanish words, like kind of mixed into my language, yeah. like just like stuff that like in, in like as a teenager, people would have just been like, that is weird. Like what, <laughs> you know, what are you doing? And, uh, but I had a pair of gym shoes. This was like a no-name brand, um, a pair of gym shoes that were in my locker and then they, they got stolen. And, um, I, uh, you know, my parents just, they didn't have that much. I mean, I was on, on discounted lunches, you know, uh, in school. And so my, my school principal told me that I could work as a janitor at the school to help pay for the the shoes to replace them. And so I was really grateful that I, you know, I was, uh, this is before I was old enough to like, I think I was 15 or 14. So I, I didn't have like a job yet, a real job. And, um, I was really grateful at the same time I was embarrassed. Um, you know, I, I remember the first time I was working with the main janitor of the school, like it was after school, but there were still some kids in the school. I kind of walked behind him, you know, hoping that no one would realize that I was a janitor. I didn't want to get picked on. I didn't want to, I don't want to be any more different. And so, uh, and the janitor, I remember he turned around and uh, he told me, you know, we walk together. No one here is better than anyone else. And I was embarrassed. I was embarrassed that, I had made him feel that way. And I felt pretty bad about it. In fact, I still do. I still feel really badly about it. And um, it was a great lesson. It was a great lesson for me. Um, and certainly, I I, I think those experiences helped me develop a lot of empathy for others and for those that might feel a little bit different or feel um, that they don't quite fit in. I, I have about four
1: follow-ups from that, <laughs> uh, some statements. I mean, one's interesting, I think, I was talking about kind of, you can look uphill or downhill, right? And so you came from this environment where you're looking downhill and you had so much more than everyone. Then you come back and, and then it's sort of, you know, looking uphill. I always think that's an interesting perspective. Have you, have you kept in touch with a, with a janitor?
0: You know, uh, no. And I, I honestly don't even remember his name. I kind of remember what he looks like, but like, yeah, it's it's definitely one of those experiences you have as a young person that sticks with you. Have you followed the
1: thing in Harvard in the last week around the around where they had these jobs like where students were working in janitorial and then they canceled them because they thought it sent the wrong message and then the students doing it were saying, hey, no, like that was the best people that we met. Have have you followed this at all in the last week? No, no, I haven't. It sounds awesome, though. Someone was telling me about this. I'll dig it up and sending you. Someone was just telling me about this story where, again, people were guessing what was good or bad for other people. And actually, the group working those jobs, which came, you know, which couldn't afford their education, they said, look, these were the people I related to and related with, like, it was just an interesting thing I started. So what what did you do after that? What did you study? Did you go to university in the area?
0: Yeah, so I went to university at Brigham Young University in Utah. And uh, I took a year, uh, sorry, I took two years out of school uh, a year into my college education, I took two years off and I went and I lived in Bolivia for two years as a mm-hmm. missionary for my church, uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints. And it was, uh, again, just a life changing experience. I mean, when you spend at that age, when you're, you know, 19 years old, you're pretty self centered. I mean, it's kind of all about you, you know, like yeah. what am I going to study? What am I going to do when I grow up? Like all these, it's all about you and figuring out who you are. And what I found was that as I spent those two years, you know, 19, 20, 21 years old, um living in you know a very poor country living in communities where like i lived in you know homes made of of mud adobe yeah. walls and you know very simple life um i and every single day was about other people it was not about me it was focused on how can i help and serve others and that's a life changing experience because it, it, you end up realizing that's where happiness really comes from that's like, to the point of your you know the quote when you opened up the podcast yeah. right it's it's all about giving, and when you when you're all about giving to others, it's amazing how happy you can be. So, how did you make the transition into
1: entrepreneurship?
0: Yeah, so you know, it's interesting. I w- I went back from my mission in Bolivia. I got back home, and um, you know, I was so excited to see my family. I mean, during those two years, uh, you talked to your family four times: uh, Mother's Day, mm-hmm. Christmas, uh, of the two years. And you write letters every, I wrote a letter at home every week. I got letters from my family. It sounds like summer camp. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Maybe a little less fun than summer camp. But but it was um, such an amazing experience. But I came home. I was so excited to be home and see my family. But as we pulled up to my parents' home, like, you know, similar to what I mentioned before, just like overcome with this feeling of like, of guilt of like, why do I get to live here? Why do I get to live here when these amazing people live in a completely different world? And, um, you know, I started college and I was just determined to find a way to use my life to help others. And that's what I wanted to to do. I I got a nonprofit uh, internship working in Peru, uh, went and spent some time there, um, came back and I ended up hearing about an entrepreneur who had become a philanthropist. Uh, His name was Steve Gibson. And he had started a, a program in the Philippines where he was teaching entrepreneurship To people living in extreme poverty to help them create their own businesses. And it was so inspiring to me. And uh, I actually had the opportunity to meet him. And I I tried to convince him to let me go work for him. And uh, the whole time I'm giving him my pitch, he's smiling and nodding. And in my head, I'm thinking I'm nailing it like he's totally going to let me come work for him. And I wanted him to expand his program from the Philippines to Latin America, where I'd grown up. And uh, at the end, he goes, you know, Davis, I love your passion around finding a way to help people. But what I see in you is you would be a great entrepreneur. Uh you shouldn't go work for me or for a nonprofit. You'll make a bigger difference if you, you know, go create uh, you know, great experiences and maybe um, have some success as an entrepreneur. You can go make a much bigger difference. And so that was kind of the spark that got me to start thinking about entrepreneurship. And so when I graduated from college, I I started my first business just a few months later. And what was that? Was that in was it billiards? Yeah. Yeah, very random <laughs> business uh, called PoolTables.com. Yeah. And uh, it's exactly what you think it is. Uh, you know, selling pool tables on the internet. I had
1: the sounds idea like a of... Wayfair type business when they were doing all these super specialty things. Yeah,
0: exactly. That was kind of the era, right? <laughs> and so, uh, you know, my cousin and I had this uh, idea of building a business together. And I, I, I somehow randomly came up with the idea of like pool tables and um, you didn't we, offer free shipping, I'm guessing. No, we did. <laughs> did. We did offer free shipping. <laughs> they're, a th- they're like a thousand pounds, but the model worked, and so you wow. know we did we did like a million in sales our first year, and we did the business for about six years, and then uh, we went off to business school. My my cousin went to to Harvard Business School. I went to Wharton, and uh, when we graduated from our MBA programs, we we moved down to Brazil and started another business together down there. So, so yeah, those you know that first business experience it was fun it was you know it was bootstrapped it wasn't venture backed or anything it was yeah it was a great little business that we loved building and i I discovered a real passion and love for creating and building and for entrepreneurship so when did you start
1: codopaxi and what was the was the genesis of the idea
0: yeah so when i was living in brazil building the last business um In some ways, it was a dream come true. I was back in Latin America where I'd grown up. My my two daughters were speaking Portuguese and having this amazing international experience. Um, Our business went from four employees to 300 employees in like 18 months. So it was just a, a crazy experience. At the same time, I was really unfulfilled. And I was really discouraged just thinking... You know I'd made this commitment that I was going to use my life to help others. And I just I didn't feel like I was accomplishing that. And I was starting to feel frustrated. I, I'd set a new year's resolution. This is in 2013. We had a a family gathering. We do every once a week, we have a family meeting and we all get together and we we talk through we have five family core values that we kind of talk through and how we're doing we kind of created the kind of different rituals and traditions to reinforce those values but one of the things that we talk a lot about is being selfless and helping others and i'd set a goal that i wanted to change somebody's life that year and i had it on a post-it note in the mirror in the bathroom and by may i was feeling discouraged because like i had not made progress and i was just feeling like what am i doing like what is my life all about and as i laid in bed that night i just started having a few ideas that came to my head and i rolled over and wrote them in my phone. And, um, I ended up not being able to sleep. So I got out of bed, grabbed my computer, sat on the couch all night, uh, the following day and the following night. So like 36 hours and over that 36 hours, that's when the idea for Cotopaxi came to me. Uh, and I took a detailed journal and and notes of that entire experience. And it's amazing, remarkable how similar this business is to what the vision I had. So what year was that again? 2013, 2013. Okay. Yeah. And so, um, You know, I had the name Cotopaxi, our slogan gear for good. What is that name? I'm going to ask you, what, what does the
1: name mean or where did it come from?
0: Yeah, so Cotopaxi is the name of a volcano in Ecuador where yes. I grew up as a kid and as a teenager, and I used to go backpacking there with my dad all the time. Uh, the school I went to was called Academia Cotopaxi, so named after this volcano. It's a place that just has a real special meaning to me, and it's uh, it ties back to this place that I really love. And I, you know, I go back to Ecuador often. I, I was there earlier this year. I was there, um, you know, when the pandemic started. I was there. So like. It's a place that I really care about and um, that's where we're doing a lot of our, our poverty alleviation efforts are in the Andes and specifically in Ecuador.
1: Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best in class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. (coughs) Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers, with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space, and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am, and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info. The Pay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com elevate. So what is the tie in the organization? Is it a monetary give back? Is it a product give back? How how do you tie in the mission to the business?
0: Yeah, so there's a lot of ways the companies give back, right? And I think in the 80s, it was kind of this, uh, you know, corporate social responsibility, CSR programs. And it it was almost like, hey, we made a ton of money. So we kind of feel guilty and we want to create some goodwill. So let's like go do some good in the community to like buy ourselves some goodwill. And I think over time, that's evolved quite a bit. And uh, we no longer really talk about CSR. You know, it's more ESG, or, or even I think right. that we need to think beyond ESG, even. But, uh, you know, for us, the way that we think about giving is we had wanted to identify really the root causes of poverty, which we uh, believe are, we have three pillars which we believe are inextricably linked to poverty alleviation so, education, healthcare, and livelihood training. And uh, so, instead of doing a, a buy one, give one program with a product, and it's not to criticize, you know, any business that's doing a buy one, give one, like any business that's using their business to go do good, good for them. Yeah, that's fantastic. But I, I really felt like we're not going to go solve poverty by giving away a backpack for every backpack we sell. Like instead, let's go use our profits. To if go- you don't have any books to put in the backpack,
1: you know, then it's not going to help you.
0: Absolutely. And having spent so much of my life in Latin America, like I've been to these little communities. I've been to these schools where you go into a school and you go into their library and there's literally not a single book. There's a bunch of photocopies of books and that are stacked on on top of each other on, on a little shelf, on a little wooden shelf. And it's like, that's their library. And uh, so, yeah, like, uh, you know, what can we do to go make a bigger impact? And so those are the pillars that we focus on. Uh, in the first five years of the business, we gave away more than we made. You know, we made a, a commitment of a minimum of 1% of revenue. In those first few years, we gave 2%. And, and- did you have investors during that time? Or was yeah. it self-funded? So okay. Yeah. Yeah. We had investors. Uh I'm guessing and,
1: very specific investors. Curated. Yes. I mean,
0: yeah. <laughs> you know, interestingly, like when, when I had the idea for the business, I went out to Silicon Valley. You know, we moved back from Brazil to the US. I went out to Silicon Valley and I started pitching a bunch of investors. A lot of them were impact investors. And I thought, okay, these are the investors that are going to understand what we're trying <laughs> to build. Impact investors did not get it. They like I got rejected faster from impact investors than I did from normal investors. And so, what were they looking for? Like, they like the buy one give one. Like, they just like what? What were they looking yeah, for? Yeah, I mean, uh, to be honest, I'm not exactly sure. <laughs> yeah. But I think like a lot of the questions were like, wait, so you're not going to be you're not based in India or you're not based oh, in like Latin America. Yeah. Like, you're, you're why are you, why are you here? Oh, you're selling backpacks and outerwear. Like, how is that? You know, they they just couldn't connect the dots. And I think they're looking for something more established. Like they're not used to investing in an idea and a PowerPoint. Yeah. Where venture capitalists, more traditional VCs, like they're doing that. You know, they're like, oh, this is a, a great founder, a great vision, a big market opportunity. Like it's just an idea, but like we believe in this. And so they're like willing to put dollars in. So that's what we ended up doing. Uh, so Kirsten Green from Forerunner Ventures in San Francisco was the first one to back us.
1: Okay. Yeah, I know her. Huh?
0: Yeah, she's fantastic. So, so yeah, we ended up, but, you know, they were traditional venture capitalists, but they were people that had heart. And interestingly, Robert, our first major investor was Kirsten Green. Our second was a woman named Ellie Wheeler. Our yeah. next was a woman named Brooke Harley. And then an, the next was Lauren Iveson. And then our last investor was uh, was Bain Capital. And the, the partner there was uh, Cecilia Chow. So you might be catching so I'm on. I'm noticing
1: a trend here. Yeah.
0: Yes. Yes. <laughs> And I don't know how to explain it, other than to say I honestly think women better understand purpose and business than men, huh. at least in these early days of like of uh, figuring out ways to link impact and business together. So, um, so yeah, that's been an interesting experience. Uh, so you started
1: then. So so a lot of your stuff is made from repurposed materials, right? Yes, a particularly huge... the backpacks. Right? Yes, and the colors are really bright. So I've always wanted to know. As I told you, my wife did some real damage when we went to your first store in Park City and she got tons of compliments because the <laughs> stuff really stands out. Is that because you're using things that already existed, or is that part of the sort of your root cultural roots and the bright color, or is it both? Because the backpacks look like it what it is, what it is, right? If it was a piece of yellow, a piece of orange, if anyone hasn't seen them, they're really cool. Like the backpack looks like it's made out of 10 backpacks. But yeah. so how does that all work? Are you just using yeah. what you have or are you going with Certain styles and designs.
0: No, it's uh, it's a little bit of both. In, in terms of like, yes, we're using whatever remnants are available to us. And okay. so we from use the all same... your products, or is that like the jackets and stuff too, or not? No, not not all the products. But uh, our line, we have a line of bags called Del Dia. Yeah, and the, that line of bags, there's maybe twenty or maybe even thirty different types of bags, fanny packs, and no two are alike. Right, from what I've seen. Yeah, yeah, every yeah. single bag is unique, and that's the one rule that we give. Uh, The sewers is like, hey, for the first time, you guys get to create, you guys design the products, use any materials you want, use any colors you want. They have to be the remnants. But the only rule is make no bag alike, like make them unique. And where are you getting the other bags from? Like, do companies have a bag trading program or like where are you? So so it's remnant fabric. So like our fact, like none of these big outdoor brands, any outdoor brand you can think of, they don't own their own factories. They're using. We're, a lot of, we're using the same factories as a lot of these other brands that you can think of. And, and so there's a lot of waste that's created in that process. And so um, that's what we're using for the remnants. But we also, not just bags, but we also do do apparel. Um, we don't do the one-of-a-kind story with the apparel. Uh, apparel is a little bit trickier, but um, there's a lot of remnant. And we might have a place that gives us, you know, maybe we get 100 yards of some color, 50 yards of another color, 200 of another. Our design team will take those and they'll figure out Ways to color block like a, a windbreaker or a, a jacket or, or a fleece jacket of some kind. And so we use a lot of remnant, even in, the, in some of our apparel. But about 94% of our product is made of either remnant, recycled, or responsibly made materials. And we've committed that to be 100% by 2025. So we're incredibly proud of, of the work that we're doing uh, on the environmental and sustainability side, despite the fact that our, our main effort is around poverty alleviation. But you have to do the environmental piece right. But I just don't think that's a competitive advantage. Like, You just have to be responsible. You think, you think that's table stakes these it's days? It's table stakes. Yeah, it's table stakes. You have to do yeah. that right. Um, and so for us, we wanted to do more than just that. And, and so what is your, do you have a specific commitment? You know, that you may,
1: is it either people both, are you expecting your employees to to use their time in a certain way? And the company with, I mean, Bain Capital is a, a profit-driven investor, right? So yeah. uh, how is that all set up?
0: Yeah so we we are members of 1% for the planet meaning we commit uh you know at least 1% of our revenue we've traditionally given between 2 and 3 um we commit uh 1% of our product so we donate a lot of product to nonprofits and other organizations that they might have a fundraiser or maybe there's some initiative that we can help with so uh and then we do 1% of our people's time and so sure. there's a lot there's a, a big culture of our, in our team of volunteerism and and helping others everything from you know our coding engineers that have they had a twenty week coding class for refugees. Um, to we created a job club where we give refugees their very first job when they join when they come to Utah. You know they join this job club. They're still learning English. Our team volunteers to teach them how to create a resume, how to do job interviews, and then they get their they can get their first job with us. So we have a lot of different initiatives there as well.
1: All right, that's awesome.
0: So you know I've been following kind of the businesses. I
1: mean, meteoric rise for a while, but you were you were really starting to hit your gear as 2020 <laughs> approached, right? And I know, I know, COVID, you know, hit really hard, but I think you also that was probably your inflection point of how you and your team pivoted and responded and figured out how to both survive and help other people in the process, which I I think is a tightrope <laughs> balancing act. Most people were trying to figure out one or the other. Can you talk a little bit about? Where the business was when COVID hit, what you did, and what kind of has been the, the the tail of that as you've come out of it.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was it was a scary time, and as we all yeah. know, at the first you know Q two of twenty twenty was uh, awful uh, for us. I mean, it was like we it felt like we got hit from every side. Our retail part. Because when were- you're growing, I just just start sorry. When when you're yeah. growing
1: business and in retail, you are buying inventory, trying to get ahead. You're always restocking yeah. your cash. You don't have a lot of money lying around
0: exactly right and then when all of a sudden all these people start canceling orders yeah not only uh, do you not have their money but you have all their product that they were expecting to buy that you've already paid for Yeah. so it's like it was you know disastrous and we you know all of our the you know our retail partners rei and others are closing big corporate orders companies that had say hey you know we want to order a bunch of bags or jackets for a conference they're canceling those it was a scary time i remember actually reading an article that you did uh, around how different CEOs were responding. And it really inspired me. Uh, this idea of, you know, are you a fear-focused CEO or are you strategy-focused? Yeah. Uh, and I shared this article with my whole team. And I, I challenged the whole team to question, like, wh- how are they doing in their role? Are they fear-focused or strategy-focused? And, um, you know, we we put together a plan of, like, how we were going to respond. And we, you know, in the first few days of the pandemic, we, we were – Very thoughtful in how we responded. And we, you know, our hope was we wanted to impact as few people on our team as possible. And so we all rallied together. We all took pay cuts, um, some bigger than others. Some people on our team actually volunteered to take 50% pay cuts, which we didn't do. Did you survey people? Like some
1: companies asked, like what people prefer. Did you ask people or did you discuss that together? No. No,
0: I just made the decision. I mean, literally, we shut our office down on Friday, March 13th. And on Monday, I had an all hands meeting where, like, I just, there was no time to waste. Like yeah. I, I, we had to move quickly, and so I just told the team, "This is what we're doing." And you know, I was shocked. Like people rallied behind us, and uh, we ended up having a good year. It was uh, it was our slowest growth year ever, like in the history of the business. We grew, but we grew forty percent, which is like wow. crazy. You know, it was crazy. So what did you do with the inventory? Did you find different channels? Did you guys make masks? Like, what were you? What were you doing? (laughs) Yeah, we made masks. We we sold a million masks. We made masks. Masks to say do good. They were all made of remnant material. And um, honestly, the mask really saved our business because our number one product was a travel bag, and no one was traveling. So (laughs) we had all this inventory just sitting there of travel bags, and we had you know, but we found ways to respond, and um, we ended up. Um, making a, a commitment from the very beginning to our team that like every dollar that we've committed to impact will go to impact. We're not going to use that in the operations of the business and right. end up giving two point nine percent of revenue that year. It was like, I think our biggest giving year ever that we wow. had up to date. And it was like we just felt the world needed us more that year than ever before, and we we could give and so we did. And so um it was a crazy year. and I look back and I'm so grateful for it despite the challenges that we had. it was something that really brought us together as a team in a really unique way.
1: And you're probably now in that bucket, like the airlines, or the other problem of not enough product, not enough people, can't fulfill all the travel demand.
0: I I would say
1: uh, most business leaders are used to, and for those like the sort of supply and demand imbalance problem, like particularly like we're in professional services, and I always joke that the Nobel Prize will be given out to people who figure out how to match supply and demand in service business. But the violent swings of supply and demand in the last year are sort of historical, and you know what you're focused on nine months ago is not even on your board slides. You know, months later, so
0: now, are you dealing with like the now the inverse <laughs> problem? Yes, <laughs> yeah. You know, it's interesting. In 2020, we spent about 250 thousand dollars on air shipments. Yeah. Um. So most of the rest we ship by ocean in containers. This year, in the first quarter, or first maybe four months of the year, we'd spend. I think 4 or 5 million dollars on air shipments. Wow. Cuz you just can't trust the stuff on on boat or you just yeah. can't get it in time. Yeah. We couldn't get containers. When we do get a container, it would sit in the port of Long Beach for a month. Yeah. And then into the port and then it takes another month to get it's like <laughs> and by the time like if you're selling jackets, yeah. It's like okay. It's not well, great
1: for a seasonal business,
0: yeah. No. No, so that was you know that's been a real challenge. And we also do carbon offsets for all all these kind of things, so it gets really expensive for us. But I think things are starting to normalize, and uh, we're grateful that we can airship because not all businesses right. can. Do that. You know, I have other friends that own businesses where they have something that's so heavy or bulky that, like, an air shipment is not even a possibility. And so, you know, we certainly have felt a lot of struggles with supply chain uh, shortages of inventory, especially travel bags. Ironically, well, and isn't Salt Lake City like one of the hottest job markets in the country too? Yeah, yeah. we have. <laughs> I think maybe the lowest unemployment in the country. Yeah. Uh, maybe one point nine or two percent or something. One point nine. Wow. Yeah. But you know, Robert, we've we've embraced remote work. I was just gonna ask you that. So you were not,
1: did you let were people allowed to work remotely before the pandemic?
0: No. No, no, not before the pandemic. <laughs> I mean it was like I <laughs> so was you're, the you're a convert. Yes, I'm a convert. <laughs> I was the world's biggest believer in being in the office. Uh, in fact I discouraged people from ever working at home. If they joined our team, they had to move to Salt Lake City to where we're based. And um about a month into the pandemic, I just realized this works. Like, I, I'm enjoying it better myself. Like, I'm a better partner. Like, I'm I'm out helping change diapers and potty train our little boy. Yeah. And I'm doing the dishes and, like, uh, and in between a call. Like, I was a better father. I was a better husband. And I was more productive with my work. I, you know, I wasn't commuting. I wasn't being distracted throughout the day. And what I missed was the connectivity with people. But we just kind of decided, look, we can either kick against the pricks, And wish that the world was (laughs) what it used to be. Or we can say, you know what? We're going to own this. Like the world has changed forever. And we're going to do this better than everyone else. And it's going to become a competitive advantage. And so that's what we've done. And uh, our team is now spread around the country. Uh, We have a more diverse team than we've ever had. We have a more talented team than we've ever had. How big is the team now? Uh, We're about 280 employees. Yeah. And... It's been amazing. Productivity is higher and we found unique ways to create connectivity. We every Friday morning we have a virtual hike at 9 a.m. mountain time where everyone goes onto a Zoom call and people are going on a on a walk with their dog around the you know, around the block or they're going on a trail near their home. And then we have a what we call a lifeline. Uh, which you're in YPO, Robert. So yeah, you're from yeah, yeah. Lifelines, and we have someone on the team do a lifeline, which is they kind of walk everyone through with slides. So you're kind of walking, you're looking at your phone at these slides, and they're they're talking about their life. Whole company, they do this to? Yeah, to the whole company, yeah. and we rotate every week. Whoever did it gets to ask someone else in the company to do it the next week, and we get to hear about their lives. And it's amazing how vulnerable people are. They they'll talk about. We had a, a senior woman on our team that talked about being adopted and the impact that's had on her and. We've had others talk about maybe a divorce or, or or maybe their parents got divorced and some different, just different things that have shaped who they are. And all of a sudden, like I'm getting to know my team better than I ever did when I just ran into them in the hallway at work.
1: When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Well, I, I, you and I—we haven't talked about this before, but and, and this is something I stole from you. But um, you know, I, I think just because people are remote, they need to get together. They need to have these things. We, we've had this thing called AP Summit for years, and it was in December, and then we ran into COVID, and it was just getting really hard to plan these indoor events and the amount of money and bring people. And then I saw your camp thing last summer, and I said to her, "I'm like, we're going to camp." And so we took everyone to summer camp this year and it was amazing. Like, and you know, a lot of people kind of were hesitant after two years of traveling, they didn't want to go sleeping in bunks. Like there was definitely some resistance. I think some of it was just getting used to, but, but it was like, everyone was acting like a 16 year old kid and loved it. Like playing games, uh, you know, out on the boats, water. We had a lot of people get hurt. They're older than they thought they were, you know, playing (laughs) volleyball, playing kickball and, and stuff like that. But, uh, uh, yeah, I actually, it was your article I sent. I was like, and, and we found this place, this this place that does like summer camp for companies in Pennsylvania. It was amazing. And, and uh. those moments, we've had this sort of event for years. We've had employee TED Talks similar to what you're talking about and just try to create like, I don't, like three or four days of, of really getting to know people. And so, I mean, it carries throughout the year. Sometimes you're in an office and you never have a real discussion with someone, you know, all years long, but we've had employees give these speeches at this event and stuff. And it tends to open up just a lot of dialogue.
0: Oh, I love it. Well done. Yeah, the summer camp thing, uh we we did it last year as you pointed out and we yeah. did it again this year. Oh my gosh, I just cannot overstate how wonderful it is. And yeah. you know, for us, I don't I don't know how you did it and I'm sure there's plenty of different ways to do it that are all right. You know, there's not like necessarily one right way, but for us it's like there's no work. Like we don't discuss work at all. We, we there was very little programming. We did our
1: award ceremony we always do. We didn't yeah. do we did it like state of the union, but it was a campfire speech uh, by our new CEO. Um, but we actually decided what people really needed was just connection. And so um, we made that change. And And I would encourage people, I just, again, in a world where I don't think COVID's going away anytime soon. And again, it's really hard to plan these, like try to move 400 people in the winter and, and make those, de- like we just, I think outdoor was also part of it. You know, it's funny. Everyone you said before about like, you know, remote, I think people are very adamant about things until they, I, I always felt like, our annual meeting needs to be at the end of the year, like we do the end of year awards. We celebrate the year, like it was like I I don't see moving. And then you do you make a change, and it's just not a big deal at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally agree. So yeah, people always say, "Oh, you must save so much money on." I'm like, no, no, we spend all of that and more on on getting everyone together and doing these meetings. It's not it's not a cost-saving thing. It's, it's letting, you know, I, it's funny because we've been remote for 14 years and and years ago, people used to ask me to come to these remote only conferences or, and, and I just wasn't, for me, it wasn't like, there's people who are just all about this remote lifestyle and and culture. We just had this culture that was like flexibility and accountability. However you wanted to use it. Some people wanted to be traveling and some people just Wanted to pick up their kids every day and didn't want to be in traffic. And I I was always more around this combination of flexibility and accountability than it was remote. Because I really do think for a company that's, again, 100% remote, we do a lot of things for people to get together. I think if your employees never meet each other in person or don't do things or don't have that connection, it's easier for them to leave.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, I love that. Flexibility and accountability. I might steal that, Robert. You can steal that. We'll just keep stealing, you know, the DEO, the, the YPO,
1: R&D, the ripoff and duplicate. <laughs> <You> know, <just laughs> taking it. I love it. So on that note, you know, I, I know you're also kind of working to distinguish yourself on, on the culture front, uh, including sort of how you're approaching DEI. What's sort of your vision for those two things?
0: Yeah, I mean, first of all, I think anyone that that cares about results, cares about diversity. So, that said, it's not easy, and it takes real effort. And being based in Salt Lake City, you know, in anywhere in the Mountain West, it just doesn't it's have not a lot diverse. Of yeah, it's not diverse. It's <laughs> yeah. just not diverse. And you know, so that was a real challenge for us from the beginning. You know, we always had we always had an amazing female leaders in the team. You know, we've our board has predominantly been female from the beginning. Uh, we've had women in senior leadership roles. I think we have more women in, in in senior leadership roles than men in the company. But diversity was a real challenge. And it wasn't until we embraced remote work that we started making real progress. But I think one of the things I've learned around diversity and inclusion in, in building a team, and, and I'm still learning, to be honest, like I, I, there's so many areas that I think we can do better that I'm, I'm still trying to learn more. But one of the things that I've learned is that you have to really put in the work. You know, we've had a number of roles where uh, you know, especially in senior roles where you, you post the job, we've had a number of roles where like 94% of the applicants or 91% of the applicants were male. Yeah. Uh, so it just takes work. You can't just say, okay, these are the applicants. This is the pool we got. So we'll just choose from it. And uh, this is something that we do as a team is like we sit down and we say, okay, like let's go on LinkedIn and let's go search. Let's go hunt for the people that we want that have done this job before. You know, you might put it together a list of 30 or 50 different companies that you really admire, and you go look for You do a search for people that have the title that you're looking for, or a similar title. And um, it turns out, like, when you go reach out to these people, they're oftentimes they're interested. Uh, another thing that I've done, I'll reach out to other leaders. So, like, when I was hiring our company president, you know, I called... Uh, This is not an exaggeration. I probably called 100 different leaders that I really knew and respected of other brands. And I asked them, like, who are the best leaders you've worked with? I'm looking for a president. Who should I be thinking about? And uh, it turns out, while over 90% of the applicants from the normal applicant pool were men, when I asked those questions, these other leaders, almost half of them were women. And so, um, you know, with a little bit of work, I think you can, it's possible to find and build a more diverse pipeline of applicants. And then you have a higher likelihood of having a diverse team as you do that.
1: Yeah. The other thing, I mean, we've had a similar challenge, even though we are, uh, we've typically hired experienced people out of our industry and the industry is not diverse at all. And, And we just, because of the remote, we just never felt like we'd be a great first job. Like we wanted people that had been in the office and then knew they wanted flexibility. Like we just felt like, you know, maybe that wasn't the the choice. And what we realized, and I think other companies do, and it, as you grow, it becomes a competitive advantage. But if we built an in house kind of training program and university, it would then allow us to widen the talent pool. And that's what's made the biggest difference is saying, look, if we have to rely on, You know, I I was curious what you were saying, because if you called all these competitors and they weren't diverse either and (laughs) look for their talent, then it's hard. So we've been able to cast a much wider net and say, look, if you have these baseline skills, uh, you know, not from our industry, we can train you in three to six months. And and that's really helped us make a difference because I agree with you. I think there were a ton of platitudes and things that went on and people made a donation or they put something
0: on their social media and that just doesn't do anything. Um, um, yeah, <laughs> you know, one of the things that I found difficult, Robert, and i maybe I, I'd love your perspective on this, but this idea, you know, I, one of the things that I hear often is like, if you want a more diverse pool, sometimes you can't look for someone that's done the exact thing before, because then you're getting more of the same and you're not Correct. getting diversity at the same time. I struggle with that because like as a business that's, that's doubling every year, that's seeing really rapid growth. I feel like we don't have the bandwidth or the time to train people sometimes. Like we just need someone that has done the job before. They can come in and run because like we're all like our hair's on fire. My hair's gone. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like you know, we're like yeah. we're running full speed ahead like we don't, you know, so we we kind of need people that have done there and been been there and done it before. So I'm I I don't know if you've if what kind of, you know, what you've seen there. Like we, are you
1: finding All businesses are a little different. So I think for us in professional services of the roles that we're looking are are these client service roles, right? So if we need an experienced CFO that's done M&A, right? As you said, like, you're going to, your pool is going to be narrowed. And I think people are just going to have to, that is just going to be true, right? You're going to be fighting a tough number because you're fighting 10 years of uh, the result of maybe 10 years of those people not, you know, having a shot at that or whatever. But I think we've gone to a class system, you know, in terms of, and I guess companies do this otherwise. We're, you know, hire really smart people who have... Again, they got to be interested in marketing, right? There's some baseline, ideally some digital experience. And we hire them in in groups and we train them. And then they kind of go out into the field and, and the workforce. So it's sort of the 80-20. I think those specialty roles that are one-off, you're gonna, we're going to run into that more. And sometimes you say, look, I it's great. And I'd love to take two years. To your point, if you get 94% candidates for a role... You know, then you're probably going to have to double the time that it takes to then source, and then and double that, and and sometimes the organization, everyone's really being hurt by that role not being filled. Um, so we try to promote eighty or ninety percent of people from within. So our our, our belief is like if we ha- if we can keep the the bulk of these class hiring and promoting and moving people up, eventually, you know, that will be less of of an issue. But it's hard to overcome numbers. Uh, an investor. You know that we work with that's operating out of a town that has the same sort of demographics that you were saying they were saying look we just you know we're just not getting these resumes and and people want to be in the big cities you know and so it's people that live here and it's hard if, if you're trying to have balance and you get 97.3 in something it's hard to overcome those numbers you'd have to get figure out how to get t- almost 10x more volume
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, these are these are challenging things that, you know, we're all having to figure out. But the the good news is that people care about it. And I think we're all making progress. We've seen tremendous progress, you know, in the diversity in our team. And, you know, one of the things that's interesting, too, is uh, with Bain Capital, when they invested, they have a fund called Double Impact, and that's who they invested uh, from. And uh, the thesis of this fund is basically the idea that you don't have to compromise on returns uh, on growth. But, you know, if you're choosing a business that's doing good, they actually believe that you're going to have better outcomes. So it's not a fund that promises lower
1: no. returns. Yeah. Interesting.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Which you might think it's like, oh, OK, they must maybe they like lowered the bar for the. Yeah. They're doing good. It's like quite the opposite. It's like they're trying to prove that the results will be better than normal businesses. And that's what we believe, too. And so, uh, you know, we're working together on that. But one of the things that we did when they joined is like they've really I mean, they are really good at impact. And so they've joined with our impact team and their impact team. And we've put together all these things in place of like, how do we do even better? One of the things that we've done is we actually have tied the executive team bonuses. Part of our bonuses are tied to diversity, improvement in diversity.
1: Hmm. You yeah, know, what, what gets measured, measured gets managed. Yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah. So it's great. We're all aligned on what we want to accomplish and we've set some ambitious goals of of how we want to increase uh diversity and we know we'll we'll be a better business because of it uh, and i'm curious do you, it, it, when you think about goals
1: particularly as a business that's increasingly global is it are they qualitative or are they quantitative
0: uh that's a great question i'd say increasingly they're quantitative okay you know i, I think as the business gets you know more sophisticated and we kind of grow up out of kind of the startup phase and you know, increasingly everything is measured quantitatively. Got it. And, you know, there's good and bad about that, but I think overall, I think it makes sense for the stage of business we're in. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE.
1: So I think I also recently saw that you shared that you did not want to be a CEO early in your in your yeah. career. What why did you think that and 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 what actually changed your mind?
0: You know, I my so my cousin and I um built our first couple of businesses together and um What I had seen about CEOs, like I I remember, you know, reading about Jack Welch and, you know, I think they they fired a lot of people all the time. Neutron Jack wasn't your uh, idol. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, So that, in my mind, that's what a CEO was. It was kind of like someone that was heads down, like just, uh, you know, focused on everything internally, you know, firing people, like didn't feel any remorse around, like letting people go someone that was just very kind of hard-nosed. And uh, that just wasn't me. Like, it just wasn't who I was. And I, I, you know, I remember telling my cousin, uh, my co-founder, like, I just don't, I don't have any interest in being a CEO. That's just not what I would like doing. And over time, what I realized is like, that's actually not what a CEO is. That's not what a great leader is. And a a leader is more heads up. You know, they're a better listener than speaker. Um, They're someone that cares deeply about people. And it doesn't mean you don't make hard decisions. You do. You make. You have to make really hard decisions. And a lot of times, you don't have a lot of time to make hard decisions. And um, sometimes you make mistakes. But at the end of the day, what I found is that people really love working for someone that wants to work for them. I work for my team, not the other way around. Was, it's funny. I was just going to ask you that question. I was, yeah, I think there's a belief
1: that you know, the new sort of school of leadership, the org chart has flipped, right? From sort of sitting on top to how do I get these people to to do their best work, right? Or yeah. not get them, but maybe assist them to do their yeah. best work.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, I talk to my team all the time, like about, I work for you. And like, I'm here as a resource to you. So, you know, I share my personal cell phone with every new employee. Like, I use the word love in leadership. Like, I think it's one of the most underutilized tools and leadership is love. Like I tell my team, I love them. Every all hands meeting, every senior leadership meeting, I finish by telling them, I love you. And my team knows I care about them deeply. And so um, I think when, when you know someone cares about you, you want to do your best. And when you get feedback, you're willing to listen to it because you know that they have your best interest in mind. And so I think it's, uh, I think it's really underutilized and I, I love the culture that we're building and, and we're seeing great results. You know, our we have 4% turnover. I mean, if you join our team, wow. you stick around and it's there's been a lot of a lot of great lessons that I've learned as a leader through this process. As you said though, sometimes you have to make hard decisions
1: and and one of the things uh, too, I think sometimes you have to make decision for the most people versus people are looking at something from a self-optimization standpoint and a leader has to think about you know and that's hard for people sometimes like sometimes there is obviously there's business models of layoffs and something but sometimes there is a hey we got to do something here or else everything's in jeopardy right and and those are not those are not decisions that people want to make but they do have to be made or else there could be even <laughs> more problems
0: yeah and you can't delay and try to you know use a democratic you know way of like hey let's right? everyone vote <laughs> on this you know so yeah, yeah. All right, la- last question for you. This is multivariant.
1: so it could be personal or professional, and si- or single or repeated. But what's a mistake that you've made that you've learned the most from in your personal life or career?
0: Oh boy! <laughs> uh, I mean, there's so many mistakes I've I've made along the way, and um, you know, I think one of the earliest mistakes I made was hiring. You know, I I hired one of my very best friends. It was my first. I think it was our first employee, um, you know, my first business. And uh, he was my best man at my wedding, like just a really great guy. And um, uh, it didn't work out. And luckily, he's such a good person that like we're still very close friends. But um, I learned that you have to be really disciplined in hiring. And uh, uh, the way that you can increase your chances of success in business is by having an extraordinary team. And that often doesn't mean uh, hiring people within your network that you know. It's like being very disciplined, running a process, what we call the rule of threes. Even if you feel like you have the most extraordinary candidate in the the world, you have to find at least two other people, Mm. at least that good. And so we run a process and uh, we hire, you know, we, we make sure that three different people on a team interview every person. You can't just go hire someone without having to go running through that process. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, You know, call three references, like those references are sometimes the easiest thing to overlook. And you think, oh, they're only going to give us people that, that really love them. True, maybe, but like, it's amazing what you can get out of a reference call. You and also so, have to ask good questions, <laughs> even if the person yeah. loves them. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, you know, I think, I think that might be one of the things that I, I made mistakes early on that I, we've gotten a lot better at. All right, great. Well, Davis, where can people find more about you or Cotopaxi? Yeah. So, uh, you know, obviously our website, Cotopaxi.com, you can check us out there. Also follow me on LinkedIn. I I love sharing about uh, startups, love sharing about leadership, lessons learned, social impact. I find that to be a really positive social network, unlike many of the others where people are there to support each other, to learn from each other. And uh, I love love, uh, having that community. All right. Well, Davis, thank you for joining us uh, and sharing your story. Really
1: excited to hear, uh, learn about more about you and 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 you know for the growth of the business
0: yeah thanks robert really appreciate it this is nice of you to have me all right you can learn more about davis
1: and Paxi and his work on the episode page at dot com. if you enjoyed today's episode of the elevate podcast in general i'd really appreciate if you could leave us a review as it helps new users discover the show thanks again for your support And until next time keep elevating